He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Good to see you on this beautiful Easter morning. What a gorgeous day to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord, isn't it? Not just inside, but like outside too. It's going to be at or above 70 degrees all week. Like Dan said, spring, things are coming back to life. It's such a beautiful picture of resurrection. Well, if you were here last Sunday evening, we watched the movie together, The Passion of the Christ. And it was a a really vivid, graphic depiction of the betrayal, the torture, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's, it's not an easy film to watch. I don't think so anyway. It's very difficult. But for me, one of the most stirring scenes is when Jesus is almost beaten beyond recognition and he's carrying that cross toward Golgotha and he crumples under the weight of it at one point and as he looks up he sees his mother and he says I am making everything new and that just takes my breath away now those are the words of the Lord from scripture it didn't happen there it's not recorded there it's in Revelation 21 5 where Jesus is sitting on the throne in heaven and he says behold I am making everything new but it was appropriate to bring it into that point in the movie he may have said it more than once but it was just a beautiful moment and I love that making everything new I love myself. I love taking things that are broken, worn out, and restoring them and making them like new again. I've been doing that all my adult life. I kind of caught it from my father, and I love doing that, taking something that's old and making it new. But sometimes you come across something that is beyond repair. Have you ever seen that? It's just like, there's no fixing this. Consider, for instance, this automobile. There's no fixing that. You're not going to buff that out. (laughs) It's not going to happen. I mean, at best, it might hold some value as scrap metal. But if it's ever going to serve any future purpose, it's going to require something more than just restoration. It's going to require transformation. And to transform means to go from one form to another. So in the case of this wrecked out vehicle, that transformation might start by grinding it down even further into a heap of shredded metal. And then after that, maybe it could be melted down. And it would bear little resemblance to its former self. It's still metal but it sure doesn't look like a car anymore. But by grinding and melting that thing down, it could be refashioned into something even better than before. What if, for instance, that car could become something like this? How about that? I mean, that's quite a transformation, isn't it? It started out as something that was almost worthless. And now look at it. And not only is it new again, but it has capabilities that go far beyond anything it ever had. That car was not going to go that fast. And it wasn't going to fly. But now take a look at it. What an upgrade. What an incredible upgrade. Sometimes things in life are damaged beyond repair. Sometimes people are too. Imagine the passengers in that car. I doubt that they got out of there with their life. And no amount of medicine or surgery is going to bring them back again. Not only can people be damaged physically, they can be damaged emotionally and spiritually. And they can be damaged beyond repair. But the good news of Easter that we celebrate this morning is that no matter how damaged we are, no matter how damaged I am or you are, we can be made new again. And it won't be just through restoration. It's going to be through complete transformation. 
And so with that in mind, the title of the message this morning is just that, Complete Transformation. And a key passage is going to be Romans 8, verses 22 and 23. And we're going to look at two parts, a spiritual transformation followed by a physical transformation. And, and this passage in Romans may seem a little strange for an Easter text. I kind of held my breath when I turned it in for the bulletin on Wednesday. I thought, oh, I don't know about this. But I just felt the Lord saying, this is where we're going. And so it's actually a connector between these two topics. And both are made possible by the very event that we're celebrating this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So rather than reading through this verse at the beginning like we normally do, we're going to save it until we get to the middle, and we'll read it at that point. But what I want to do first is set the stage by reading some other passages that lead up to the familiar Easter text. And if you want to turn to Matthew 28, you can do that. Um, I'm going to read a bunch of passages, and it won't do you any good to try to turn to them all because I think that'll be more distracting than anything because I'm going to read them pretty quickly. But if you keep a finger in Matthew 28, then after I read the other passages, we'll come to that. But before I do, let me tell you about a man I heard about. He went to church on a Sunday and became increasingly agitated with the message. And so after the service on the way out, he hunted down a pastor and he said, you really have to do something about your sermons. You speak about the same thing every time I'm here. And the pastor said, you only come on Easter Sunday. <laughs> well, maybe some of you only come on Easter Sunday. You know what? I'm fine with that. I'm glad you're here. But I can promise you, you're not going to hear the same thing this morning. I can guarantee that. And we're going to start by reading through verses that just trace out the life of Jesus leading up to the resurrection. So just sit back, listen, just kind of soak in the word of God as I read through these passages. And then we'll meet up again in Matthew 28. Okay, so here we go. Luke 2, 8 through 11. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Matthew 9, 35 through 36. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 16, 13 through 17. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has not been revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Mark 10, 32 through 34 they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. John eleven twenty one through 27. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. John eleven thirty eight through 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out with his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. John 12, 12 through 15. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king comes to you seated on a donkey's colt. John 12, 23 through 24. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Matthew 26, 47 to 50. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. So Jesus replied, Friend, what do you come for? Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. John 19, 1-7. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head and in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. John 19, 16 through 19. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here, they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Matthew 27, 45 through 54. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtains of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy men who had died were raised to life. 
When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified. And they explained, surely this was the Son of God. John 19, 38 through 42. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. When he, accompanied, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And now we come to Matthew 28. Would you stand with me out of just reverence for the word of God as we read this? Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you come looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now we could just stop right there and say amen and sing a closing song and go home and have lunch. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but I'm a pastor, and I'm a teacher, and I'm supposed to teach. So I don't want to go home without asking one really important question. So what? So what? So what if Jesus was risen from the dead? What does that have to do with me? Maybe that's a question that's on your mind this morning. What does that have to do with you? Well, in a word, everything. Everything. Beginning with spiritual transformation. Jesus didn't come and die and rise again just to prove that he could do it. And he didn't do it for any selfish purpose of his own. In fact, it was the most selfless act imaginable. The price he paid wasn't for himself at all. It was for me and for you. It was for us. Pastor Dan taught Friday night on 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. The only righteous one who ever lived stepped down into our world of unrighteousness to take the punishment for our unrighteousness. And he did it to bring you to God, to bring reconciliation between you and me and a holy God. Now we talked about this last week. We talked about sin. Sin is anything that misses the mark. And God's target is really small. His target is moral perfection. And that's what it takes to be in the presence of God. Nothing short of perfection. So then what does it take to be completely separated from God? Just one sin. 
one lie, one rude word, one act of selfishness. That's all it takes because God is perfectly holy. He is without sin and sin separates mankind from God. I heard about a minister who was walking down the street and he saw a group of boys between ages 10 and 12 and there were about a dozen of them. And they were surrounding a dog and he thought they might be harming this dog. So he went up and asked them what's going on and they said, oh, that dog, it's just a stray and only one of us can take him home. So we were going to have a contest to see who gets to take him home. And they said, we decided that whoever can tell the biggest lie gets to take the dog home. Well, right away, the minister was shocked at what he heard, and he launched into a 10-minute sermon. And it began with, don't you know that to lie is a sin? And it ended with, when I was your age, I never told a lie. <laughs> there was like a minute of silence as they're there. And he thought he finally got through to these boys. And then the youngest one said, all right, give him the dog. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the, the wages of sin is death. It only takes one sin to separate us from a completely holy God. But the fact is, you and I, we're not guilty of just one sin. For honest, our lives are filled with sin. And our world is filled with sin. All you have to do is look at the news to, and you'll see that there's a deep soul sickness in the human race. But you don't even have to look at the news. It's got to look within. It's got to look at yourself and the thoughts that go through your mind and go through my mind and the things that we say and do. There is a deep soul sickness. In Genesis chapter 6, before the great flood of Noah, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and how great his wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. That's pretty much where we are as a society, isn't it? Our sinfulness affects everything, everywhere, all the time. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart. That refers to the inner being. That refers to our inner self, and it's desperately wicked. And it can't just be fixed up. It can't just be restored. It's broken beyond repair. Yet, all the way back in the Old Testament, 600 years before Christ was born, God gave this promise through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove your old heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It couldn't be fixed, our old heart. It had to be transformed. Our old heart had to be taken away. and We have to be given something new. And this transformation is so radical that God describes it in the Bible as new birth. It's like being born all over again spiritually. Just erase the slate and start all over. That's what it takes. Spiritual transformation. It's nothing short of a miraculous new spiritual birth. And 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know this verse, it describes it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The result is a brand new person on the inside. New desires new motives, a new perspective on the world, a new perspective on God, most importantly, a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 say this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This spiritual transformation is only made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You can't be, you can't be fixed up any other way. I can't be. It requires a complete spiritual transformation. 
throwing the old out and starting all over again. Think about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. What a guy he was. He was persecuting the first century Christians. He was going to their home and dragging them out and torturing them and throwing them in prison and killing many of them. And he thought he was doing, he was doing it in the name of the Lord until he encountered the resurrected Jesus. There was a tremendous spiritual transformation that took place. He no longer thought the work Jesus did was the work of Satan, but he knew it was the power of God. He went from being the church's biggest antagonist to the biggest protagonist. The man who was out to put an end to the church. God used him to write a large portion of the New Testament. He became Paul, the Apostle Paul. His transformation was so significant that those who knew him had a hard time believing this was the same guy. They were afraid to even get around him. Go see Brother Saul. Brother Paul. What? Brother Saul? Are you kidding? That guy's a, a raving murderer. But he's now a brother. I, I heard about a man who lived a really selfish life. And he treated his wife horribly. And one day a co-worker shared the gospel with him. And, gave, and he, he responded and he confessed his sin and he gave his life to the Lord. And he soon realized his sin against the Lord and against his wife and his family. And he wanted to make amends. And so he picked up a dozen roses and a box of chocolates and he put on a clean shirt and he tucked it all in and he combed his hair nice and he knocked on the door. So excited to tell his wife about his changed life. Well, as soon as she opened the door, she broke down in tears. She said, he said, what's the matter, honey? She said, this is the worst day of my life. She said, first little Billy fell off his bike and twisted his ankle. And then the washing machine broke and flooded the basement. And now you, you come home drunk. She, she, couldn't, she couldn't reconcile this new guy that was standing at the door. Transformation in our lives can be so dramatic, people might not even recognize the new person that we become. And that's what God's in the business of doing. Transforming hearts. Taking out the old and putting in something new. But here's the thing. It's made possible by the resurrection of Jesus, but it doesn't happen automatically. It's offered to everyone freely, but only to those who want it. God's not going to force himself on you. You have to be wanting a relationship with God. You have to be willing to confess that your life is sinful. And you have to, be, you have to recognize your need for a savior. You have to be willing to believe in what Jesus did when he came to this earth and he lived that perfect life for us and he died for us and he rose for us. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a free gift of God. But it's only for those who humble themselves and receive it. I'm sure there's some here who've never received that for whatever reason. Maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe they were too prideful. But if you humble yourself and confess your sin, God stands ready to forgive and welcome you back into a relationship that he's longed to have with you your entire life. He offers you complete spiritual transformation, but you have to receive it. But there's a second facet of the resurrection that I want to look at this morning, and that's physical transformation. Most that are here have probably placed their faith in Christ at some time. You maybe, when you did that, you maybe probably felt like the, the load of guilt and sin lifted off your shoulders. Like you felt the Spirit of God come into your life and give you all new perspective, new motivation, new purpose in life. You went from meaninglessness to purposefulness. You entered into a relationship with God himself and he placed his spirit in you. But maybe now, having walked with the Lord for quite a while, you're finding life is still hard. 
it's far from perfect. You still have hope and joy. It's kind of stashed away. But you're realizing life is not a bed of roses. Maybe you lost your job. Or you're struggling with health challenges. Or you lost a friend or a loved one to some accident or disease. Maybe you're finding yourself in conflict with unbelievers and family members like you never were before. Maybe you're now the object of ridicule and scorn from people who know you. In some ways, your life might even seem harder now as a believer than it was before you were saved. You might be struggling with this. You might be still struggling with areas of sin that God's pointed out to you. Or struggling as you look at the broken world around you and you struggle just to get through another day. You know the beauty of God's righteousness, but all you see around you is brokenness. You can hardly stand to watch the news and see what's happening in this world. It breaks your heart. Well, if that's you, you're not alone. I want to go to the title passage for this message, Romans 8, 22 and 23, my strange resurrection text. And listen to what it says. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the Apostle Paul. He's saying that even he and the apostles who've been saved and have the Spirit of God within them are groaning. It's this gnawing inward pain that just doesn't seem to go away. Can you relate to that? Have you felt that? Part of it could be physical. Physical pain as these bodies of ours wear out. I can relate to that. Every morning I wake up, I feel like I got some new ache and pain <laughs> that I didn't have before. I groan as I get out of, Ugh, ow. Now I feel like I can get sore just watching sports on TV. <laughs> I can pull a muscle just watching it. That didn't happen when I was 30 years old, but now it does. But it can also be emotional pain. It can be the pain of persecution can just be the pain of living in a broken world. Remember what it said of Lot, his righteous soul was tormented when he saw the stuff going on around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you feel that. My soul is tormented when I see this messed up broken world. Well, Paul says in verse 23, he says, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. We groan. Maybe we could just try that. On the count of three. Let's just let out a collective groan. Can we do that? One, two, three. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Try again. You can do better than that. Ugh. Yeah, a collective groan. Even though we have the Spirit of God, why such pain? You probably know the answer, but I think... You and I both, we need to be reminded of it. The reason we still experience this pain is that although we've undergone this marvelous spiritual transformation, we're still living in broken bodies in a broken world. Our bodies are still perishable. They're subject to sin and all of its degenerative effects. We can go through medical procedures and all types of therapy. Some of them help. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem never fully goes away. And it's driving towards an inescapable conclusion. We're going to die. All we're doing is prolonging the inevitable. The Apostle Paul wrote at one point in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. I'm glad I don't want to be uninformed. What is he going to say? We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, sisters, about the hardship we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even life. That's like Job when he said, curse the day I was born. That's how deep 
this gnawing pain was within the Apostle Paul and the, and, and, and the fellow apostles. They despaired the day they were born. It says they, it was far beyond their ability to endure. It literally brought them to their knees, this agonizing pain. They despaired even life. That's how heavy his trials were. And yet he says in the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 1.9, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Did you catch that? Paul's hope was in God who raises the dead. He was looking forward to a future resurrection of his own. The resurrection of Jesus happened. He had spiritual transformation, but he's groaning. He's looking forward to another resurrection, his own. He says something very similar in, in verse 23 of this key text. He says, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's talking about resurrection. Remember what Jesus said in that verse about Lazarus when he was dead before he raised him from the dead? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he said, do you believe this? He made it very personal. Romans 8.11 says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. He promises us a resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection. So here Paul is acknowledging how hard life can be. But he knows that if God raised Jesus from the dead, then he can raise himself God can raise Paul from the dead as well. But here's the best part about it. The redemption of our bodies is more than just resurrection. It's more than just coming back to life again. It's resurrection that brings with it transformation. Complete transformation. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 through 44 say, So Will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So for those who are in Christ, our physical bodies will be transformed into a body that will be imperishable. No longer subject to sin or disease or death or pain. And then it gets even better. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, get this, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What a promise that is. We don't even know exactly what this is going to look like. But I know one thing. It's going to be glorious. That's what it says. It is going to be glorious. Went too far. There is victory in store for those who are in Christ. Because Christ Jesus rose from the dead. It guarantees it. He defeated sin and death on the cross. And there's not only spiritual transformation, but physical transformation for those who are in, the, in Christ. And the result will be eternal glory. Eternal glory, never-ending glory for those who are in Christ. I can't think of any better news than that. And this is what allows the Apostle Paul to say these incredible words, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. In the midst of his agonizing, gut-wrenching, bring him to his knees pain, he says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Wow. So can God really do this? He already did. He already did. He, Jesus resurrected Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and others from the dead. And he himself rose from the dead. Now, you might question that. You might be skeptical, but I've said it again and again. Check it out. It is the most well-attested fact of ancient history. Anybody who goes about trying to disprove it, scholars, they end up embracing it when they look at the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You can't avoid it. So he already did. He already did prove that he has the power to resurrect us. But what about this transformation? What about that? Is God really capable of doing this? I have no doubt whatsoever. Let me give you just a, a small taste of God's power to transform. One that you can see yourself. You can go out this spring and you can see it. Consider this unattractive, lowly caterpillar. Doesn't look like much in terms of God's creation, does it? It's not cute and cuddly. And it hatched from a tiny egg about the size of a pinhead. You can see one there next to that needle. All it does is crawl around on that tree, gorging itself on the leaves, day after day. But then, one day, it does something crazy. It hangs itself upside down and attaches itself to either a leaf or a twig, and it begins exuding this silk. And it takes that silk and it spins it into a silky cocoon, or what's called a chrysalis. And then what occurs inside that cocoon is I, you'd almost say unbelievable, but we've seen it. It's believable. It's truly amazing. They've tried to observe this with MRI and other things, and they say that what happens, once inside that chrysalis, the caterpillar begins literally digesting itself. It releases enzymes that dissolve all of its tissues. According to an article in the Scientific American, if you were to cut open a cocoon or chrysalis at just the right time, Caterpillar soup would ooze out. That's all that there is. Caterpillar, what's for lunch today? <laughs> Caterpillar soup. Yet within that soup are these highly organized groups of cells called imaginal discs. And these survive the digestive process. And there's one disc for each of the adult body parts it'll need as it transforms into something new. One disc for each of its eyes. One disc for each of its wings, its legs, and so on. And these imaginal discs use this protein-rich soup all around them and begin forming wings and antenna and legs and eyes and all the other features of a fully formed butterfly. And when all of this is finished, it begins emerging from this chrysalis. And it begins unfolding these soft wings that are all rolled up. And it begins pumping blood into them. And then, within three or four hours, it's mastered the skill of flying. It's crazy. It's amazing. I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't seen it for myself. Now, I've never cut it open and looked at the caterpillar, the, the caterpillar soup. <laughs> I don't want to kill the thing, but I'm kind of tempted. You can't tell me that happens by chance. That is nuts. It went from a lowly caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly, not through restoration, but through total transformation. It's the same creature, but it's totally transformed. It dissolved into nothing, and it was recreated into something more marvelous than ever before. It couldn't fly before. It wasn't beautiful before. Look at it now. It's not unlike the illustration I began with, right? Something that is wrecked and trashed beyond repair, being transformed into something new again with capabilities it never had before. Can God do that? Yeah, he does. We can see it. Now, if God can do something this incredible with a bug, think what he could do 
with you and me, with mankind, the crown of his creation. We are so much more marvelously made than a bug. What could he do with us? Only we are made in the image of God, not that bug. It has God's fingerprints on it, his marvelous creativity, but only you, you are made in the image of God. What could he do with your life, both now, through spiritual transformation, and in eternity, through physical transformation? This transforming power is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You and I are broken. We're broken beyond repair. The human heart can't be fixed. It has to be transformed. You've got to get rid of the old heart, and you have to be given a whole new heart. And through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, he made a way for us to experience that spiritual transformation. The old gone, the new has come. Maybe you come this morning and that's what you're in need of. You're separated from God. You don't have a relationship with him because even a single sin can separate you. You need his forgiveness and his spiritual transformation. It won't make you sinless. It'll put you on a path toward being more like Christ. But God took your sin and he put it on Christ on the cross as we saw in that vivid depiction last Sunday night. And then he did something more. He took Christ's sinlessness, his perfection, his righteousness, and he places it on us. What an exchange. What a deal. He says, you give me your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. You can't live a perfect life. You can't hit the bullseye every time. I did. And I'll give you my scorecard. I'll give you my righteousness. It doesn't mean we're righteous. It means we're declared righteous by God. What a transaction. But for others, maybe you have given your life to Christ and you're groaning inside because life is hard. And we have this hope and joy, but it still seems sometimes so far distant. We do our best to keep our mind focused on it. But all of this worldly stuff just gets in the way and just creates a fog. Life is hard. Jesus makes it better, but life is still hard. And it's because our transformation isn't finished yet. We've been spiritually transformed, but what we need, what we're looking forward to, is physical transformation. Transformed into the image of Jesus. So don't lose heart. These light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let me just close with this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's verses 54 through 56. It reads, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when the mortal with immortality... Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our complete transformation, spiritual and physical through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're messed up. Sin dealt us a deadly blow. We were sinful at birth. We were dead on arrival, God. And you came down and crawled into our casket of death. And you took our sin upon yourself. And you offer us forgiveness and life a new start, a new heart. And you do it freely, God. Amazing grace. Amazing. And God, some here this morning are still separated from you. They're enemies of the cross. They don't have a relationship with you. Not that you don't want that, but that they haven't wanted it. 
And God, you long to forgive them, to welcome them home, to invite them into a relationship with yourself, to have them sit under your blessing, to pour out the riches of your forgiveness and your life and your blessing, to give them eternal inheritance that's found with you. But God, they have to come to that place of receiving that, of admitting their brokenness, their sin, confessing it and asking you to save them. If you're here this morning, as we're praying, if that's where you are, God says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Give your heart to the Lord. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I know it. I know it. And Lord, I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus came and he died and he was buried and he was raised to life again. I believe that, Lord, and I believe that you are offering me forgiveness. I place my faith in you, God. I turn from my sin, and I turn to you this morning. Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me. Give me your eternal life. Transform me spiritually. And God, for others here, we're living as new creations in Christ in a broken world. It's even harder maybe than we thought. And we long to be with you. Paul said to live as Christ but to die as gain. And Lord, we long to be home. And we're not because you have us here. And you have work for us to do. But God, we're groaning. We're tired. We're longing to see this world. To see all things made new. God, for those of us who are waiting for that, encourage us. Give us the power of your spirit to turn completely from sin, to keep our eyes focused on you, focused on heaven, on eternity, on the glory that awaits us when we're in your presence forever. God, we praise you. We praise you for what we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the ability, the availability of complete spiritual and physical transformation. God, we love you and we worship you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.